0: Okay, well, turn to the book of Jude, verse 12 and 13. We're going to look at verse 12 and 13 today. And it starts out by saying, uh, these are the men. Okay, we're going to pause right there. These are the men. You have to remember that Jude, overall, is concerned about ungodly people who have wormed their way into their churches and are basically saying that God's marvelous, wonderful, abundant grace... Gives us license to live immoral lives. Okay? See, there's this, there's this, um, this group that was rising up called the Gnostics. There's a movement called Gnosticism at that time that was ever so subtly adding and changing some of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. And um, one sect of these Gnostics was called the Libertine Gnostics. Okay? Root word being what? Liberty. So the libertine Gnostics, and here was their deal. I mean, they had all kinds of deals, but their biggest deal was that the idea of "thou shalt" and "thou shalt not" doesn't come from God. You, you following with me? This is really important. Pick this up because this is part of what Jude is dealing with as he writes. Remember, he said, "I was going to write to you just about some good old gospel stuff, but I felt an urgency in my spirit to write to you." fight for the faith, and he starts talking about these types of men that are coming in and leading people astray, and this is one of the things that he was, they were being led astray with. The idea of thou shalt and thou shalt not is not something that comes from God. In other words, the idea, um, their idea was, do as thy will, because God's grace gives you greater freedom to live however you want to. And the results of this whacked out thinking was that believers were beginning to live their lives Uh, in inappropriate ways, in immoral ways, in ways that were unbecoming of a follower of Jesus Christ. But they were also beginning to live their lives without any regard. And I want you to hear me this morning because it sets us up. They were living their lives also without any regard to how their choices will affect other people last week we talked about considering the consequences of our choices we're gonna talk um, a little further into that but this is one of the things that was going uh, going on and and some of these people that were coming in with this Gnostic view were actually some of them were leaders in the church some of them were people who had influence in the church and so their doctrine and their lifestyles were modeling something to the believers in the churches and Judas saying you guys got to fight for the faith because these guys are leading you astray Um, We all know that this whole idea of thinking goes against everything that the gospel message stands for, not to consider others over yourself. Uh, Most of us are familiar with Romans 12. In verse 10, it says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And I was looking at the message version of this, and I really like it. It says, Be good friends who deeply love. I love that be good friends who deeply love. And then it says, practice playing second fiddle. I don't know why, but I love that. Practice playing second fiddle. You guys know that whole movement out there, I am second. You guys seen that? See, I think we should start our own and make t-shirts. I am second fiddle. You know what I mean? It would be cool. And then maybe have like a picture or like an outline of a fiddle, you know, Anyway, you can walk around. But listen, the idea, this idea was starting to change the way that people viewed the gospel and the way that they lived their lives. And the sad thing is, and listen to me close, the sad thing is that this deception was leading them into more than just inappropriate behavior. Really, more than anything, it was leading them into the philosophy that has since been adopted as the mantra for Satanism in the Satan church, Satanic church. The mantra for the satanic church, Satanism, is my will be done. My, remember what I said? Their, their whole thing was do as thy will. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. That's not a God thing. And so they don't realize it, but they're propagating this my will be done, which we know is the exact opposite of the prayer that Jesus prayed to the Father in Luke 22. He said, not my will be done, but yours be done, thy will be done, it's a my will be done versus thy will be done. And this is the danger that was, what was happening here. And Jude is really worked up about it. You know, if you, if you read this, I don't know about you, but you read this and this guy's pretty intense and rightfully so. See, the Holy Spirit over here in verse 3, the Holy Spirit quickened him to urgent, uh, urgently address these issues and, and to warn the people. And he begins, he goes on to remind uh, his readers, the saints, To remember, and he lists six different ways that there was rebellion, rebellious attitudes and actions over in verses 5 through 11. We've covered those. If you want to go back and listen to them on podcast, you can. And then here in verses 12 and 13, it seems like he really kind of catches a second wind and he starts going off on these ungodly people by using some, um, some pretty strong metaphors to describe what these men are like at the core of who they are. And I want to look at those. Um, I'm going to read verses 12 and 13. And I'm going to actually read it out of the NLT, the New Living Translation, because I really like the way it says. And then I'm going to to share some things out of the NAS. Verses 12 and 13, you can uh, read along in your version. It says, When these people eat with you in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love, they are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless Shepherds who care only for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. These men are like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by the roots. These men are like wild waves of the sea, churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. And the last one is they are like wandering stars doomed forever to blackest darkness. So there's six metaphors right there. And what I want to do is I want to look at these six metaphors and show you what they all have in common and how there's something there that will help us to be found faithful. Um, And and if you want to write, I don't think I put this on the PowerPoint, but if you want to write this down, you can write uh, six metaphors used to describe the attitude and actions of apostasy. Or of an apostate. You can write that in there. you guys all know what an apostate is? Apostasy basically means the act of rejecting and abandoning one's principles or cause. So an apostate would be someone who rejects and abandons one's principles or cause. And uh, the idea of this happening happens all over the Bible. People rejecting the Lord, walking away from the Lord. Their godly principles, godly ideas. You actually see that word apostasy 3 times in scripture. The first one is in Jeremiah. He's prophesying and he says, "Why then has this people, Jerusalem, turned away in continual apostasy?" He says, "They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return." And then Hosea, the prophet Hosea in chapter 14, he talks about the actual returning point of that. He says, "Return, O Israel, to the Lord, and I will heal Your apostasy. So Jeremiah calls out the apostasy. And Hosea says, listen, God will forgive you your apostasy if you will turn back to him. And then another place that you see that word apostasy uses in 2 Thessalonians, um, which is, you know, the whole chapter 2 there is kind of a kind of an end times kind of a verse there. In verse 13 or verse 3, it says, talks about how there will be a great apostasy. There will be a great falling away from the faith. People will reject and abandon the principles of God's Word. They will leave what they have known previously to be true of God and His Word and then chase after other things. And he says, There will be a great apostasy before the man of lawlessness, and that's a description of the Antichrist, is revealed. There will be a great falling away before the Antichrist himself will be revealed. And so Jude is about to speak towards one of the main causes of apostasy you guys ready we're gonna look at these six metaphors the first one and i'm reading this out of the nas he says um they're like hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear caring for themselves and i want to start i want to break this down a little bit because this this first one is kind of the the mother metaphor you know what i mean and it kind of sets the pace for all these other metaphors, and so I want to spend a little bit of time on it. That word, uh, that idea of a love feast, basically what that is, is that the earlier early Christians had these big old giant potlucks uh, where all the believers were invited: uh, the poor, the rich, um, the fatherless, uh, the widows, the orphans, uh, even slaves. Anybody who was a believer would be invited to these big love feasts, and they're eating together was proof of the love in Christ that they shared for one another. And they would call these meals love feasts. They would also call them agape feasts. Um, Sometimes they would even be called feasts of charity. And uh, everybody, everybody basically was able to bring something. And obviously some people were able to bring a ton of food. Other people were not able to bring much at all. But they all shared whatever was brought together. Okay, so these big love feasts, these big feasts of charity where whether you're rich, poor, alone, or full of family, you know, you all came together and you shared. Everybody shared what they had, which is a a picture of what was going on in Acts. We know that. And then at some point after the meal, this is where, you know, this was what makes the meal really special. At some point, it wasn't just a meal. At some point, they would share uh, communion together. They would take communion together. They would worship together. They would read Scripture. And so this was obviously a special deal, these feasts of charity, these love feasts. But look what it says. It says, they, talking about those goofy men, um, the apostates, they feast with you in your love feasts without fear, caring for themselves. Okay, now this, this is actually... Um, this is a metaphor, but this is actually real because here 's here's what would happen. They would literally, these men would literally jump in line first, before everybody else, and they would fill up their place and listen, I get it, I do that every Thanksgiving, but there 's nothing right about that. These guys would jump in line every meal, not just Thanksgiving. I think we have permission at Thanksgiving, right? but they would jump in line before anybody else, before the widow before the poor person, before the slave who probably hadn't eaten in a week. They would fill their plates. They would also fill their goblets with wine. And they would, they would um, just get full and gorged. And they would get drunk. And they would start making scenes. And they would ruin the day. They would ruin these love feasts. And if, you, if you're familiar with um, Paul's writing, he actually addresses this with the, uh, the Corinthians because this was going on. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, it says, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's, he's calling them out. When you guys meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one of you takes his own supper first. And one is hungry and the other is drunk. In other words, there's hungry people over here, but by golly, you got your food and you're drunk too, <laughs> And Paul's calling them down. He says, um, and one is hungry and another is drunk. And then he just says, what? W-H-A-T with a big exclamation point. He's like, Ooh. he doesn't even know what to say. Is this a question? Is it? He's just like, what? He's so upset. Paul, you don't see very many exclamation, point, exclamation points in the Bible. So when you do, you're like, man, this guy ticked, you know? He says, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? And he says, what am I supposed to say to you? Am I supposed to praise you? And then he says, in this, I will never praise you. And he's talking about these ungodly men who would visit these love feasts and jump in line. That's what he would do. That's what he's talking about. And so Judah, he's describing these guys, the same guys that... That Paul's describing right there, and he calls them. Here's what he says they are: they are hidden reefs. And that word for hidden reefs is the word "spilos." It has two meanings. One is rocks or hidden reefs, which basically points to the dangers of a shipwreck, and not just shipwrecking a feast, you guys, shipwrecking the faith. Everybody's gathered together to share in this wonderful love feast, this feast of charity, agape feast, and to take communion and celebrate the Lord's goodness like we've done this morning. And they are coming in. They're wrecking that. They're shipwrecking that. But they're also wrecking people's faith because these guys are, are esteemed and their leaders doing this thing. And it's like, oh, oh, I didn't know we could get in line first and get drunk and fat. You know, and so he's following these guys. This is what these guys were doing. So they're, they're shipwrecking, not just the feast, but they're also people's faith. This word spilos can also mean spot or blemish. In fact, some of your versions may say that. Um, spots or blemishes, spots and blemishes or blemishes in your love feast. How many of your versions say something like that? Okay, which basically just points to defilement, which is exactly what these men were doing. Something that was supposed to be pure and holy and celebrated and all this stuff. Men were coming in and defiling it with their un godly, inappropriate behavior, okay? Um, So that's the first metaphor, and that's kind of the mother metaphor. It kind of sets up the attitude and and some of the stuff that's going on. The second thing it says, they um, care for themselves or serve themselves. Some of your versions may say something like, shepherds who feed only themselves. And uh, basically, I mean, that kind of speaks for itself. These guys who are leaders are coming in and thinking more about themselves than they are anyone else. And there's a prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 8, that says, as I live, remember, Jeremiah. Uh, uh, Ezekiel was a prophet, and he's hearing from the Lord, and the Lord says, As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, P-R-E-Y, my flock has become, even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. And it goes on to say, I will destroy those shepherds and I will bless my flock. And so that whole idea there, it's just another metaphor. It's a very serious metaphor, especially for those who are familiar with prophecies and, and, and the prophets and the law of the prophets and all that stuff. The third one, it says, these men are like clouds without water, carried along by winds. Now think about the area where Jude lived. Think about the place of the world where he lived, where probably the very sight of, Of a cloud in the sky would bring hope of a nice, cool, refreshing downpour, right? You guys hear what I'm talking about? It gets hot in that area of the world. And so the thought of a cloud or the, you know, you see a cloud, it's like, oh, thank God it's going to rain. We felt like that last summer, didn't we? You see a cloud, it's like, oh, thank you. I, uh, Jim's shaking his head back there. You know, he had a, a big old, um, uh, what do you call it, vineyard with grapes all over the place. He invested a lot of money, time, energy, emotion, has dreams and visions towards this, this vineyard. And man, the, the lack of rain, that kind of jacks with stuff. And so you see a cloud coming, you're like, oh, thank God. Well, look what it says. These men are like clouds without water. Sometimes a cloud can turn out to be light and empty. And it's so light and empty that the wind just blows it on by without any rain, without leaving any rain. You hear what I'm saying? He's likening these men to that type of cloud. He's saying that this is the type of... uh, He's describing that type of person like this. There is an appearance of being a cloud that offers a refreshing uh, cloud, refreshing rain. But it turns out they offer nothing. They just float on by. In fact, because they are just people that are being carried around by their own passions, their own desires, their own lusts, just like that soft, light, empty cloud, they turn out to be not givers, but takers. When you see that cloud, what happens? Oh, hope rises up. You're expecting to be given this cool, refreshing rain, but then all of a sudden, it passes on by and that hope is stripped from you. So it's a picture of Uh, of not being a giver, but more of a taker. Um, And then the fourth one is pretty similar. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. And his point is that a tree should have produced its fruit by the time autumn comes. And it's certainly by the time autumn has passed, but the fruit is never seen. So this metaphor expresses the same thing as the one before. They have the appearance of being givers, but in the end they offer nothing. They are not givers. They are takers. Jude says that they are, not, they are doubly dead. Not only are they um, dead, not producing fruit, but they're also spiritually dead and will be judged. This, I mean, he's, I told you he was going off on these un- ungodly people. The next one, the fifth one, is it says, these men are like wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Now listen, for us, the sea, the ocean, big bodies of water are kind of a beautiful thing. You know, you can go cruise on, uh, cruises on the ocean. You can go deep sea fishing. You can go snorkeling. You can go diving. You can go hunt for treasures. Whatever it is that you do, you know. People are jet skiing out on the ocean now. You know, I'm like, don't you know there's whales out there? You know? But for us, the sea is somewhat of an um, um, extracurricular activity. It's something that we, we use as a vacation place, you know. Um, but think about it for the, the people in those days. Back then, the sea was more of a terror because the sea can be very dangerous. I mean, how many scenes do we read about in Scripture where Jesus and his disciples are out on the boat or the disciples are out on the boat and winds and waves and tossing and all this, everybody's wigging out. It's because it can be very dangerous. And this is, this is a picture of what he's given. Wild waves of the sea. In fact, it reminds me of... Um, of uh, Revelations, there's a scripture in Revelations 21 that talks about there will be a new heaven and a new earth, the first heaven and the first earth will pass away. And then it says, and there is no longer any sea. It's like, I wonder what that means. Is that saying literally there will be no sea or is it just kind of a metaphor there that it will be peaceful? It won't be chaotic. So the idea of sea in that culture is is a terrible thing, not necessarily a vacation spot like it is for us. And then think of it this way. What did the sea provide for people back then? Fish. Food. For people back then, if you're out on the seas, for the most part, it's because you've got to go fish or you're trying to get from one place to the other. It's about food. But you also you also have to consider what a restless sea produces. A sea is supposed to produce food for them. But a restless sea produces, well, Isaiah said it best. Isaiah 57 verse 20 says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea. He describes a tossing sea in, in equates the wicked to be like them. For the tossing sea cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud, in other words, foam, onto the beach. You think after a big storm, you ever seen a beach after a big storm? All kinds of weird, nasty bubbles and just junk and whatever from wherever is all washed up on the beach. So think of it. It's, a, it's another example of something that should be giving, but is actually taking, or if, if nothing else, leaving a very ugly aftermath. He's describing the men this way. This is what he's using to describe these men that make their way into these love feasts. And then the sixth one it says, Wondering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Uh, Again, Jude lived a very long time ago, and in those days, people called uh, planets wandering stars. People would call the planets wandering stars because they don't—they're never in the same place in the sky because they moved in the sky. Um, I was thinking about that uh, last night. We were out around our house. We have a little fire pit, and we were cooking marshmallows and stuff around the fire at our house last night. And I remember looking up, and I've looked up just about every night. And there's these two big stars that are out right now. You guys seen those? It's beautiful. And um, every night they're kind of in a different place. Um, in at least in in reference to, this, uh, to the moon. It's like, wow, you know, it's this. And every night, it's a little different. It's because they're wandering stars. They're not like the star stars, like Orion or whatever, that are just consistently in the same place. They move within the sky. And that's what he's saying that these people are like. Um, and we all know that that people have depended upon the stars all throughout history as a form of navigation. When they would go on a, a journey, they would, they would look at the stars. You know, thinking back even to... Um, uh, the wise men that found Jesus in the manger, they, were, they found him because of the stars. And so you think about a wandering star, a wandering star. How do you say that? Wondering, a wonder. No, it's not wandering star. A wandering star wouldn't be able to provide any navigation because it moves around. It's not consistent. In fact, if someone were to follow a wandering star, they would be led astray. They would be led into confusion. And all of a sudden, their journey... What should be just straight over there according to this art, all of a sudden it's, it's chaotic and they don't get to where they're arriving. And these are, um, these are the things that he's saying, just like the other ones. Uh, you see it again. What should be offering something, giving something, is actually taking away. You following me this morning? And like I said earlier, believers were beginning to live their lives without any regard to how their choices will affect others. Now I want you to turn to Philippians 2, 3. And this is... This is going to show us what all these themes have in common. You probably have already figured it out. Philippians, verse two. I'm sorry, chapter two, verse three. You can use your handy bookmark. Feel free to mark this in your Bible. It says, do nothing, which would mean anything and everything, do nothing or anything, from selfish or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. We'll stop right there for now. Listen, you look at those two words, selfishness and empty conceit. Selfishness plus empty conceit equals self-centeredness. So basically, in a nutshell, what Jude is describing as one of the roots of apostasy, roots of leaving or abandoning one's principles or ideas as it relates to what we're talking about the faith, is self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. I was reading um, some things, and and one thing I read about self-centeredness is that a self-centered person is basically a person who is never able to forget themselves. A person who... They might be thinking about something or someone else, but in the midst of that, they can't forget about themselves. So motivation is always interesting. A self-centered person is a person that can't seem to forget about themselves. If you want to write something down, you can write this down. It's very simple. If we are to be people who are found faithful, we must cease to be self-centered. If we're going to be people who will be found faithful on a daily basis, and in the end, when the Lord comes back for his bride, we have got to be people who, at the core of who we are, are no longer self-centered. I want to give you three things about about, um, being self-centered that I thought about in relation to all this. The first thing is this. Self-centeredness is a childlike trait. Think about that. Self-centeredness, that's a childlike trait. uh, I have a 15-month-old, Emma Kate, who, you know, I don't blame her, but guess what? She is so self-centered, you know? She wants what she wants when she wants it, and she's a very sweet girl, but when that issue comes up, girl, boy, let me tell you something, and she, you know, she's always clap, please. We talk, that means please, or I want that, or more, so when, you know, when she was early, it was just more, you know, she could barely lift her hand up to clap for more, you know, you know? that's one of the things we would do to help her not scream for something. It's like, oh, no, you want some more? You know, eventually when she wants more of something. But now, holy cow, she's got the clap going, but she's also pointing. (laughs) And she won't stop until she gets it or until you have to go (laughs) deal with her. You know what I mean? Why? Because she's, she's a baby. She's a child. She's self-centered. And that's okay. That's what our job is, is to, is to teach her how to think of others and consider others more than herself. She's on a journey. <laughs> We're all on a journey. But think of Paul's words. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. I used to think like a child. And here's the kicker. I used to reason like, Like a child. In other words, my my choices were made from childish thinking, self centered thinking. He said, But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. See, a believer who's wanting to be found faithful is a believer who is heading into maturity, not away from maturity. Self centeredness is a child like trait. Yes, Jesus says, you must become like the little children if you want to come to me. But that's not what he was talking about. If you want to come to me, you must be self-centered. But see, that's the exact thing the Gnostics were saying. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. Who came up with that? Do as thy own, as, do as thy will. Your will be done. Gnosticism is still around, that whole idea, and it's way more spread out than just that. That's only one idea. And those things started creeping into the church. Jude addressed it. Paul addressed it. I believe we're still addressing it today, aren't we? Another thing I thought about is how self-centeredness will kill a moral compass. Self-centeredness will kill a moral compass. When we are self-centered... We will do whatever, say whatever, be whatever in order to get what we want. Even at the expense of holy attitudes and actions. Am I speaking to anyone this morning? And you look at that and you think, God, how childish. I mean, how many people do we have in our lives? And maybe we are this person in someone else's life. That we make decisions or they make decisions and we're just like, that's so childish. Where is the maturity in that decision? Are they thinking only of themselves? The answer is yes. Because they are the ones that are on the throne. And listen, if you want to be someone that's found faithful by God, by his son Jesus Christ, you have to get off the throne. The gospel boils down. Jesus said the gospel boils down to two things. Loving God, loving others. Loving God, loving others. Yes, it says loving others as you love yourself. The Gnostics have twisted that. Self-centeredness does not fit in being found faithful. The third thing is this, and this is more of the cure. (laughs) Part of the cure. The cure for self-centeredness is serving with humility. You want to be someone that's no longer self-centered? Some of, some of you right now, I, I can remember when my universe revolved around me. I loved it. <laughs> you know? There's times where I wish that the universe still revolved around me because things, was, things were a lot easier. My decisions were smaller, more narrow. You know? I didn't have as many choices. There was one choice. What do you want? <laughs> and that's what I went for. <laughs> you know? You guys remember those days? Then you start growing up and you're like, oh man, if I do that, then this. Or if I do that, then this. And it becomes a little more complicated. Yeah, it's called growing up, maturing. Life doesn't revolve around us anymore. That's why it's so critical. I love that we're going through Growing Kids God's Way because this is the very thing that is helping us learn to um, rid our families and our children and ourselves from a self-centered attitude and lifestyle. And the cure for self-centeredness is... Serving with humility. I heard someone say this years ago, true happiness can only come by forgetting oneself and serving others. You want to be happy? Stop thinking about yourself. Isn't that interesting? But the world says you want to be happy? Think about yourself. Pursue what you want. Just be and do, and do whatever you want. But the gospel is the exact opposite. You want to find true happiness, true joy in the Holy Ghost? Serve people. Think less of yourself Think about others more. That's what the gospel is all about. You know, back to Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. And I'll go ahead and read all of it. It says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, which is why we're here this morning, right? To be encouraged in Christ by his word. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit or self-centeredness, but with humility of mind Regard one another as more important than yourself. He goes on in verse 4 to say, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Remember I said, My will be done is the exact opposite of what Jesus himself prayed. Not my will be done. Thy will be done. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which was the worst way to die, the most vicious and the most... Um, um, degrading way to die back then. For this reason, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, of God the Father. The picture that he's painting right there is that the reason Jesus was able to be glorified and every knee bowed down and and him be who he is, is because he was obedient. He humbled himself and he was obedient to go all the way to the cross. And he modeled that for us. Jesus was someone. How many times do we see in Scripture the, the heavens open up and this voice boom down? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's another way of saying this is my son whom I find to have been faithful. And he says he is exalted in this way. Listen, the Lord wants to exalt us, not above himself, not above his son, not above the spirit. But he does want to exalt us. He does want to lift us up to greater places. Greater places of maturity. Greater places of being ambassadors and, and modeling his grace and forgiveness and kindness. He wants to do that. He wants to look down and say, this guy is faithful. This lady is faithful. Faithful. It's hard for God to do this. It was hard for him to do it in my life. It's hard for him to do it in your life when we are people who are self-centered. Amen? remember what I said. The cure for it is humility and serving others. I don't know how um, the Lord would... Um, choose to bring humility in your life, I can tell you this, you don't want Him to do it the hard way. That's no fun. And so that's why as believers, we, we, we take a knee before Him in our heart, and even if we have to, literally, Lord, I humble myself before You. I recognize that all that I am, all that I have, all that comes my way, all that comes out of me is from You. Obviously, except for the ugly stuff, the sinful stuff. That's from the devil. who I am, what you've given me, none of this. I didn't accomplish anything apart from you, Scripture says. In agreeing with him of who we are up up against who he is, humbling ourselves before him. And one of the ways that we can um, walk out that humility is by serving others, serving people. That's one of the things I love about this body. This body is a serving group of people. This church... Serves people like no, no other business. Nobody, something like that. <laughs> Somebody's got business and somebody was serving it, okay? <laughs> Seriously, I love that about this church. But here's the thing I, I thought about. Um, we, can, we can serve and still have um, um, it not be done out of humility. We can serve with agenda. And when we do that, All of a sudden, we are just like these Gnostics who have crept their way in. And at some point, that will be exposed. How will it be exposed? Are you frustrated when you serve? Are you critical when you serve? Are you put out by whatever when you serve? That's an indication that you might not be serving out of humility. And We can go on and on about all that. I wasn't really planning on doing that. But let's stand.